All right, so here's a little bit of kind of where we've been. If you go to the next slide, I'm going to give you a real quick review. I'm going to try to make tonight move a little bit. In our first week together, we just really spent time understanding what is spiritual warfare, why Christians ignore it, why it's a topic that's not addressed much, and really just understanding that there is an invisible war going on, and it's not just going on around us, that we're part of it. We spent a lot of time focusing on that. We spent a lot of time focusing on the fact that the battle is for our minds, for our knowledge of Jesus Christ, and the fact that there are principalities, there are demons and angels and all sorts of things going on around us trying to keep us or push us towards the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Second week, we kind of started in the first week, but we really dwelled on a lot more in the second week, understanding who our adversary is. Probably my favorite part of the series so far has been really trying to grapple with who is Satan? Why is he there? How can Satan and his very existence glorify God? Can we be so daring as to say that since everything glorifies God, that even Satan and his very being ends up glorifying God in the long run? We wrestled with issues about free will of angels and free will of why we are subject to a world where Satan gets to run loose, why Satan isn't just in prison already, why the judgment on him seems to be stayed. And we wrestled with some of that last week as well asking even tougher questions about, you know, what kind of God knows that Satan is out there trying to take people down and doesn't take him down. Some of you have observed in a couple of weeks that we've done this, that it seems like if you're just going to count the number of people, the number of souls, that at the end tally are going to be for God or not for God, it seems like Satan's won more people. And Jesus even tells us that's probably going to be the result. Some of us have been struggling with, what, what's that all about? Why would that occur? And I encourage you to check out the CDs that we've done on spiritual warfare when they come out, if those are questions that are lingering, because they've really deepened my own faith, trying to understand that even those things that we don't understand end up glorifying God. Last week, the focus of our topic, though, was really about putting on the full armor of God. And I kind of warned you last week that since the first two weeks we were having so much fun debating issues of free will and where does Satan come from and all these really deep questions, that when we got into week three putting on the full armor of God, we had the danger of starting to speak Christianese where we would just kind of go blank. When we started talking about putting on the full armor of God like the breastplate of righteousness, like it just sounded so Christianese that like we might just be convinced to treat it as a light subject. And I tried to get away from that. I'm going to give you the same disclaimer tonight because we're going to be dealing with even more words that you've probably heard bantered around the church and didn't really understand what they meant. I hope tonight to add some meaning to them. So tonight we're going to actually deal with our weapons. If last week was a defensive talk about defensive strategies, tonight we look at Paul's words about how to be offensive in our warfare. Go to the next slide if you could, Anthony. Let's look at our theme verse We're actually looking at Ephesians 6 from 10 on, so we're going to look at it in different pieces tonight. Our main theme is just the commandment to be engaged in spiritual warfare. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Last week, we went a little bit further. Go to the next slide. When we were looking at what it means to put on the full armor of God, here was the verses we considered. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. 
Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. On the next slide, you'll see we broke this down last week just so you can catch up, that really the verse is saying these are the things you've got to do. Put on the full armor of God. It's a direct commandment. It assures us that the day of evil will come. It's not a question. And it's not the ultimate day of evil. We know that the ultimate day is actually a day of victory and judgment where God shows his victory. We're talking about the evil that's going to come into our lives. Paul's assuring us it's going to come. And he's saying, be in a defensive posture. Last week, we looked at the analogies of Roman armor and trying to understand what is the belt of truth? What is the breastplate of righteousness? How do you have feet fitted with the gospel of peace? We went in depth into each of those last week. I'm not going to kind of go into them, but they're important because you need to understand what your defensive posture is. Most of the time in spiritual warfare, we need to be, well, let's put it this way. All of the time, you should be equipped with the defensive parts. Okay? Paul actually tells us that directly, that this is not an option for Christians. Just like it's not an option that the day of evil might come. He's saying it will come, and you'd be foolish not to at least be defensively armed with the armor that you need to put on to protect yourself. Okay? Even if... We're defensively standing our ground. And by the way, the standing your ground and the stand firm that Paul repeats is really important. Because if we do everything right, but we're subject to attack and we fall down, it's all really not for much. The whole idea is we're supposed to stand firm in what we believe. Okay? But that doesn't mean we're not going to be subject to attack. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be subject to the adversary's efforts to take us down. And when will that happen Let's look at that tonight. There are five areas that I've identified on the screen of times that we're most subject to attack. And if you remember the ways that the adversary always attacks us, the way that Satan attacks us the most is usually through condemnation. We discussed that last week. Through trying to convince us that we're not worthy for the battle, that we really shouldn't even be fighting the battle, that there really isn't a battle always with lies, deceptions, doubts. And the battle is going on in our mind. It's a mental game. All right? Even though Paul is using all these analogies of Roman soldiers on the battlefield, he assures us, and we'll look at the verse in a little while, that the battle is going on in our mind. The battle really is for knowledge about the truth that saves us. Satan wants to do anything to keep us from knowing the truth. And for those of us who already know the truth, he wants to make you ineffective so that nobody else can find the truth. Now, his ultimate goal, of course, would be great if he could just convince you to renounce the truth totally. But he's got so many out there that are still on the fence that if he could just use you somehow to just be ineffective, to not fight the battle, to not tell other people about Christ, good enough for him. Angela. Are you by any chance implying our salvation? I think we addressed this a little bit last week, but I'll try to be clear on it. I don't believe that our salvation can be snatched away or that it's subject to loss because we don't put on our full armor. I think rather what it means is if we're not protected sufficiently and 
we become deceived to a very extreme degree. Okay, so I, I, I have to add the extreme degree. I know people who renounce God after they've become saved. Not just like, don't know. I mean, they literally just say, I've thought about it, I've considered it, I really believe there is no God. And that is not like snatching away someone's salvation through just like callous sinfulness, whatever. That's like, I think, that's about the closest you can get to the definition of apostasy that I know, of just saying, I no longer believe. I absolutely, I, I'm making an informed decision to renounce my belief. I think that's the kind of thing that the Bible says, well, that's your choice to walk away from it. Last week, we talked about a friend of mine who her dad had passed away, and he came to her in a vision and told her, he was not a Christian, by the way, don't worry about me, I'm in heaven. And she stopped believing in Christianity and renounced all belief in Christianity because Christianity taught that her dad could not be in heaven because he wasn't a Christian. But she knew, I mean, just absolutely knew that was her dad telling her, he was in heaven, don't worry about it, I'll be waiting for you. Because she was not grounded in the truth that, and if you really want to get into it, it's harsh to say to somebody, hey, I know you think that's your dad, but the most likely explanation is that's demonic influence. That's a deception of the devil. He just took her down. I, I doubt there's anything you could say the rest of your life to convince her because the deception is so powerful. For her to come to Christ, she has to believe her dad is in hell. And she just refuses to believe it to a degree that she just will not look at Christianity again. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about where she's out the door on the whole thing. Now, I can't say for certain that that means she's lost her salvation. I can say that the way I read it and the way that most people look at it is that if you've absolutely renounced this, the faith that saves you and say, I don't believe it, I don't believe in Jesus, the whole thing's a mistake, the whole thing's a hoax, it doesn't exist. You know, I mean, we can't earn our salvation, but we are supposed to accept the gift. And you just go, I reject that totally. Well, okay, that's no different than the person who hears it on the street and goes, I reject that totally. So what would, what would putting the belt of truth around her mean? In Paul's context, what he's really saying is you need to understand what the truth is. That's your defense. You, as a her, her sitting in, in this place, should have known that what you heard cannot be true because God's word is true and it contradicts what you heard. I mean, it's like a whole lifestyle, I would still... Well, if, yeah, I mean, he's giving us specific things that will help you to guard against these deceptions, these lies, these efforts. Like, I told you, I think it's far easier for Satan to keep non-believers from believing. That's the easiest one. He'll just distract them with any religion or money or whatever it is, your thing in life. Okay? Then he would next move, because I mean, I'm putting myself in his shoes. I'm trying to think of what his strategy would be. Then I would move to the church and just neutralize as many of them as possible. So they're not even fighting the battle. They're not on the mission field. They're not telling the truth to anybody. You know, or not preaching the gospel, whatever you want to call it. And then you survey the rest and go, all right, now let me take down a few. And I would probably start with the more prominent people and take them down if I could, because that would just, you know, even confuse the believers. I mean, that would just, that would be the way I would wage war, knowing that my end was certain, and I'm trying to take down as many as I can just out of frustration and, and defiance of God. And you can see that pattern. The funny thing is, I thought that story was an isolated incident, and last week I mentioned that Lena has an aunt who had the same exact thing happen to her, 
where her daughter came to her, her daughter drowned, and her daughter came to her and said, don't worry, I'm in heaven, I'm okay. You know, this is a mom who was totally guilt-laden over what happened. Neither one of them are Christian. But again, like, if in my life I heard about this trick happening twice, this has got to be one of his favorite tricks. You know? Because it's like, I, it's weird that I would hear about it. You know, I'm not one of these guys who's running around looking for, like, supernatural stuff all the time. You know, yeah. You know? You know, I'm more, I'm usually more grounded in, like, the study and the, you know, I tend to lean too much that direction. But if I'm hearing that in my own lifetime twice, like, I'm thinking, this is probably a good trick. Because now if I sit down with Lena's aunt, or if Lena sits down with her aunt and starts telling her about Jesus in heaven, she's like, her first thing is going to be like, well, wait a minute, what about my daughter? My daughter told me she's in heaven, she didn't believe in Jesus. So it's like right there you've just thrown in another blockade that's going to really be difficult for anybody to get over. Now, he's telling believers to put on the belt of truth. It makes no sense to tell non-believers to put on the belt of truth. They don't know what the truth is. That's the whole point why they're non-believers. Wouldn't the belt of truth be already on? I mean, how can you not? Well, the girl that gave it up, I don't think it was on. I'm not th- look, it's not like a magic belt. Like It's like, no, it's a metaphor. Yeah, I, I get right. it. I get it. <laughs> Okay, all right, here we go. New business idea for all you entrepreneurs out there. Let's have like actual Christian belts of truth sold at bookstores that you could wear under your clothes, you know? I mean, last week I told you like, you know those Christians that walk up to you at church and go, are you wearing your belt of truth? You know? Are you, is, God, is God protecting you with the breastplate of righteousness? Yeah? You know, like now you could actually go, yeah, you want to see it? And like roll down your like, you know? How cool would that be? All right. Let's go right into these five places since we're talking about how he takes people down. These are instances, I believe, that he can take you down. One is during times of spiritual growth. If you're growing spiritually, what better place? Put yourself in his position again to take you down. If you're growing spiritually, there will be spiritual fruit that will result from you growing spiritually. Two of you have requested that we cover spiritual gifts after we cover spiritual warfare at some point. Part of the byproduct of spiritual growth are spiritual gifts that we'll use to impact the kingdom. Why not take that person down? This is a war. You're trying to think of strategic targets. How about when we invade enemy territory? What does that mean? When we're trying to go into the area that he governs, and where does Satan govern? He governs the world. He is the God of this world, the Bible says. All the unbelievers belong to him, the Bible says. When we go into unbelievers and try to bring them into the kingdom, into our territory, what better way to take you down? At that point, you're an invading force. Now, I know we're using a lot of metaphors here, but think about it in just the normal, everyday context. If you're on the mission field trying to bring people into the kingdom of God, you're a target. The first year that I was in Russia as a missionary, I could feel the spiritual oppression the day that we went out, the last day that we were witnessing. And that day just was like one of those days that just started off, you could just, you knew there was something going on. I could just feel it in the air. It was everywhere around us. And we went down to the field and we found like 30 kids, like high school, junior high kids playing soccer. And we started talking to them. My friend Dave and I started witnessing to them and talking to them. And through a translator, we started telling the gospel story. We started doing this game with them. We're just trying to think of a creative way to preach the gospel. Make a long story short, by the end of this hour-long session that we had with them, where we're like doing a contest and asking them questions, doing all this stuff, we asked them if they wanted to receive Christ. And all of them raised their hand to receive Christ, which was totally surprising. I mean, it's just, we barely met these guys. 
And we prayed with them through a translator. We went through the whole thing, prayed this prayer with them. I don't know what happens to people that you meet on the mission field like that who are all eager to accept Christ. I don't know where they are today. But I do know that the minute we did that, I felt inside of me like, ooh, I just felt like we had struck a blow. And I don't think of things in spiritual warfare context. This whole series has been difficult for me to do because it's not my language. But I knew that when we got 30 people to raise their hands and accept Christ after they'd heard the whole gospel message for an hour, not like a quick thing, not an Evangicube flip the thing. I mean, just literally talk to them and get them to understand and say, do you really want this? And all of them were like, yeah, we want this. I knew walking back to the church that day that we had really struck a blow. And we didn't even make it back to the church before the police were standing outside our church telling us that we were going to be deported from the country for having the wrong kind of evangelism visa or something like that. The spiritual oppression was so big that day. This is an example. And I can think of many others. I'm sure maybe you could think of many others where you actually make an impact for the kingdom and you could almost feel like the devil's going, that is not cool. I'm taking you down. I felt so bummed out that whole afternoon. I mean, we were basically locked, not locked, we were under house arrest. They told us, like, can't leave the church. You know, you can't finish your ministry. We had a big, huge rally plan that night that we were hoping would bring more people in to the kingdom. And we were just stuck. We were sitting there. We crossed the line, in other words, I think. And I can say that with confidence because it was one of the few times where I really was sure, like, man, we really did damage and you don't like it. Number three, we are prone to attack when we expose the enemy. What does that mean? It's what we're doing right here. It's when we talk about what are his tricks, what are his tactics, what are his strategies, when we actually bring them up and shed light on them. Just like cockroaches like to run around in the darkness, it's exactly the thing when you turn on the light, they all scurry away. I don't think that Satan likes to have light shed on him at all. Because his greatest tactic is to be able to convince people that he doesn't exist. I mean, imagine if all the people who are worshiping money, sex, whatever, material goods, education, Buddhism, any religion else, anything. If you said, hey, by the way, do you know that you're worshiping Satan? I mean, he doesn't want them to know that. He doesn't want, he doesn't want any of that known. He wants everybody to feel like everybody's a good person. Everything is cool. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't listen to the Christians. They're crazy. They're nuts. They're judgmental. They're arrogant. They're closed-minded. You guys are doing the right thing. This one has been important to me because as I've been reading about exposing the enemy, I've gone through my own discipline that I felt like I had to go under just to be able to do this talk because I thought... Like, am I nuts? Like, I don't want to be attacked. And I'll say in fairness, I'm too small of a target, I think. I'm not a big target. And I could probably mess up my own life worse than he could. But I still was kind of thinking about it the whole time. And I went through my own discipline to try to think, okay, I need a discipline to make sure that I'm not going to be subject to attack. I know where I'm weak. I know where I would fall. I'm going to go through my own discipline as we do this talk. We're subject to attack when we are breaking with the world or trying to break sinful patterns. Maybe there's something in your life where you go, I'm not doing this anymore. This is not right. I'm not chasing a world dream. I'm chasing God's dream. I'm going to try to break an addiction. I'm going to try to get away from something the world is telling me is okay when I know it's not and follow what God thinks is okay. And he might say, no. No, you're not. I'm going to take you down. 
Now again, when I say take you down to a Christian army, he's going to rip your salvation out of your hands. He's going to take you down. Start to condemn you. Start to make you feel stupid. Guilty. Like, what kind of Christian are you? You can't even, you know, like, if people knew what kind of Christian you were, they, would, they, would, they wouldn't even respect you. They wouldn't, you're a hypocrite. You would cause people to fall. That's the kind of language that he speaks. Because he's trying to neutralize you. Christian doing stuff like that, you shouldn't be on a mission field. Christian doing stuff you do, you shouldn't be telling other people about Jesus. What if they found out about the stuff that you do? That's how you neutralize people. Finally, Satan seems to attack right before we're about to receive a spiritual blessing of some kind. Some people rejoice in attacks because they think that means that they were about to receive some sort of spiritual blessing. Um, It could be one of the other four. But it's also true that Satan seems to attack to prevent you from getting to a goal. To prevent you from getting to a place that you were about to get to. So, how do we fight against that? If the defensive armor we put on, like knowing what the truth is, having righteousness that comes from Jesus, and having feet firmly planted in the gospel that we know, kind of like in a defensive posture, if you know he's still going to attack then can we fight back in some way? And that's what's on the next slide. We're looking at some offensive measures. Go to the next slide. Here's the weapons of our warfare going on with Ephesians. In addition to all this, so in addition to joining the battle and knowing that it's there, in addition to putting on the defensive armor of God and knowing what your truth is and standing on it, in addition to all this, Paul says, take up the shield of faith. I'd like to see those in a Christian bookstore. Like That'd be kind of cool with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So here they are. Shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. Let's look at each of them individually. Go to the next slide. The shield of faith. Again, more metaphors from the Roman armor. The shields used by Romans were not the little ones that the gladiators used. They were big ones. In fact, the shields that the Romans used in formation, they actually linked them together, and they would walk. Anyone know why? I mean, Paul alludes to it, because the enemies would always shoot flaming arrows at the legions marching, because that was the surest way of killing them before they even got close to do hand-to-hand combat. So the Romans created these shields that were just iron in the middle, wood on different sides. They had linen inside, bound with leather on one side, And they actually left space between all the different layers so the arrow would actually go in and maybe get extinguished inside of the shield. There would be hundreds of these things flying at the Roman soldiers. If we look at the flaming arrows that are coming as the things we just talked about from Satan, deceptions, lies, condemnations, assaults, even just an effort to slow you down, keep you off the battlefield, then this shield is our faith. The faith that we have. Knowing that we're secure in these three things. We trust in God's character. We know who he is. We know he's got our back. We believe that he's good. We believe in his promises that he gives us, and we hang on to them. Some people in Christianity have a discipline of claiming God's promises. It's a good discipline. They sit down and they remember his promises. If you don't know them all, there is a book in the New Song Library called God's Promises or Claiming God's Promises. Somebody went through for you and picked out all the promises. And so you can actually claim God's promises and have faith that they will come true. 
God makes so many promises and he says, I will not change my mind. I'm not a man that I would lie, nor a man that I would change my mind. These are my promises. And I make them to you. So you can claim them and say, I expect you to fulfill this promise. The old covenant, the new covenant, they're promises. That's what they are. It's, a, it's kind of a, a way of looking at God in a contractual relationship. Like in the Old Testament, I'll be the God, you be the people. We'll have like a relationship. It's a contractual relationship kind of, but it goes deeper because it's covenant relationship. Contracts can be broken. Covenants that God enters into are binding. And he'll still keep his promises even when you don't, unlike contractual promises. There's more to it than that, but those are the promises. So you can use that as say, you say you got my back. You say you're a provider. You say you'll protect me. You say the victory belongs to you. You say that you will take me with you. I claim all those promises. And that's the shield that you hold up against all of these doubts and deceptions. We also have to trust in this program and timing that maybe those promises are true, but they might not come to pass exactly the way you would want them or when you want them. We spent a lot of time struggling over the last couple of weeks of why God allows this long period of time to go by after Jesus claims the victory on the cross and the devil's still running around. Like, what's with the delayed execution on the plan? But one of the things we realized is that if Jesus had just closed the door the minute he took the cross, we wouldn't be here. And we wouldn't get to go to heaven. It's possible that, well, it's more than possible. The fact that the devil's still running around the world wreaking havoc is necessary for us to go to heaven. For us to even exist. For us to know God. I mean, you could say that God loves us so much that he's letting the devil do all this just to gain a few more. That's a lot of love. But he's doing it on his timing, his program. So the faith, yeah, it sounds like a defensive weapon, but it allows you to advance forward. And it really is you saying, I choose to believe these things. I will claim your promises. I will believe in your character. And I'll let you do it on your timing. It's all good with me. Let's go to the next one. The helmet of salvation. I would love to see a whole church full of people wearing a helmet on Sunday mornings, all right? The helmet of salvation. The metaphor, pretty clear. Very important part of the armor. Okay, again, sounds like a defensive thing. How does the helmet of salvation protect us in the battle? The reason I put that question up there is a lot of people think, well, salvation's already gained. So why am I choosing to put on the helmet of salvation? Well, I'd like to point out this thing, that there are three tenses of salvation used. And we've talked about this in the past a little bit. So I'm going to look at them. Look at the screen. Like There is the salvation where the Bible says, we have been saved. The Bible also, in some places, says we are being saved. The Bible also says we will be saved. The verses on the screen, if you want to look up the context of where they are, but there's like three tenses used. Most of the commentators really explain that, of course, we understand that our salvation is a one-time thing. A past tense, have been saved. That's why we're saying we're justified, we're made pure again. But there's also these other two concepts of salvation. We are being saved, that concept of lifelong sanctification, that we're what I sometimes just refer to as the Christian life. Like once you get in the club or once you have salvation, now you spend the rest of your life on a journey of becoming more like Christ the sanctification part. And then sometimes the Bible refers to a future salvation, like we will be saved, it's tense, is translated. 
And that really is more about the glorification that we receive when we enter heaven. I want to make clear that those are three because actually the helmet of salvation refers to the present one, the concept of sanctification. Why? Because we need to protect our minds. Remember the whole battle takes place in our minds. Go to the next slide and look at this verse that we had from 2 Corinthians. We put this up on the screen the first week and now it kind of comes back. It makes more sense. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If you go to the next slide, in the first week I kind of made this analogy that we joke about the idea of angels and demons tugging at us, but really the battle is going on in our minds. The battle is against the knowledge of God. That's how he's taking people down. Those who don't know keeps them away. Those who do know, he keeps them ineffective or maybe actually takes them down fully. That's why we're commanded to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that's really what the helmet of salvation is really about. It's dangerous to say that we're putting on something so that we can get salvation. We already have that. That's the past tense of salvation and justification. We're putting on the helmet of salvation for the purpose of sanctification. Because the closer we get to living that Christian life the way that Jesus did, the more effective we are in the battle. If we take off that helmet and live any way we want, don't take our thoughts captive, don't conform ourselves to what we're supposed to be doing, we're totally vulnerable. Not vulnerable to losing salvation. We're vulnerable to just be taken down and being made ineffective because we're not living right. And when the condemnation comes, we'll actually agree with it, probably. We'll take ourselves out. And the struggle, I think, for us is not to compartmentalize spiritual warfare. Like, we tend to go, okay, I need to pray, and I need to read my Bible, and then, like, we have these, like, little compartments, you know? And I need to put on my belt of truth. And, like, what he's really saying is, you want to be effective or not? This is silly. We're in a war. It's going on, and you can choose to join it, or you can sit on the sidelines. Most Christians are sitting on the sidelines. So that means that we're losing people every day to the battle. But if you're going to join the battle, for God's sake, put on the armor and pick up your weapons and get in there and don't wander into the battle like an idiot. And that's about the best way to sum it all up. Because I think few Christians are in the battle fully armed. There are some well-meaning Christians that are in the battle that are just going to get slaughtered. And I have to put slaughtered in quotes because it is a metaphor. And I'm not saying you're going to physically die. And I'm not even going to say you're going to spiritually die and lose your salvation. But if you ran into the battle because you were hoping to save people and participate in getting people to the knowledge of God, Paul is saying, if you're not properly armed to do it, you'll fail. Let's go to the next slide, look at the last one, the sword of the Spirit. This one's popular. A lot of people know the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So I'm not going to dive too deeply into it. I think every one of us knows that we should read the Word of God. 
I think every one of us knows my view on it is not only should we read it, but we should know it, know where to find the things we're citing, that the loose paraphrasing that we often do in the church is just bad for a number of reasons. One is we often get the verse wrong. You know, we do what I call like chopping the head off one verse and the body of another and like fusing them together. What, we, what I often refer to is the good times translation. In this context, the sword of the spirit is a weapon to be used against the enemy. Now it can be used, of course, to preach to other people and bring people who don't know Christ. But this is a specific context. Look at this, which I learned. A lot of times when we use the translation word of God, as we looked at a number of weeks ago in the book of John in the prologue, the word is usually translated as logos, common Greek word for word. But Paul uses a specific word when he's describing the sword of the spirit being the word of God. Angela, our Greek expert and resident seminarian, the word he uses implies a, well, it's the same word that's almost used to tell us that scripture is God-breathed, rima. Here's the meaning. Here's the, the bottom line. He could have used another word. He chose this one on purpose. He's not just saying that you should know the scriptures in general. He's saying you should know the words that God spoke. A more specific subset, in my opinion, of Scripture. Now, we know that God breathed the whole Bible and inspired it. But I want to show you an example. That's why I have Matthew 4, 1 through 11, to watch what Jesus did with it. Because Jesus did something very specific when he was tempted with attack by the devil. He didn't just resist the temptation the way most of us would or say, that's not true because he actually used very specific words. He said, that's not true because it is written that, and then he quoted scripture, quoted, and quoted powerful parts of scripture, like he's quoting the direct words of God right back to Satan. Right. Sure, and that's what we're going to see in this passage. That's a good point, because Satan knows the Bible too. All right? And that's one of the reasons, you, Ryan, you've got to have the belt of truth on, man. Because you've got to recognize when Satan is being deceiving, and one of the ways he's deceiving is to take Bible verses out of context. I mean, Christians take Bible verses out of context to mean things, I mean, some of the things that come out of their mouths, like, what are you talking about? That's not what that verse is all about, you know? But everyone else, I mean, the Bible could be read as literature, and people could take it out of context in that fashion too, because they're not reading it at a deep enough level. Here's Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. We know the story. Very familiar. But listen carefully this time to how Jesus responds in light of what we've been talking about. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. This time the devil cites scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, and that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him 
all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. If we were going to take this scene and turn it into like Star Wars, a Roman gladiator scene, whatever you want to turn it into, you can see them standing there with these like two swords like, well, isn't it written this way? No, it's written this way. And they're actually fighting each other with these swords. The sword of the spirit that Paul refers to in the metaphor is not some huge broad sword. It's really a very short, light sword that was used for hand-to-hand combat. And that's exactly what's going on in this scene. It's Satan and Jesus in hand-to-hand combat quoting the word at each other, quoting God-breathed words. Jesus quotes them to the devil, and that's the way he resists him. He doesn't say, no, I don't want to do that. He doesn't resist him with just plain words or by fleeing on his own. He resists him with the word of God, specifically the types of things that are quoted that have power in their meaning in these scriptures. The word itself has power. I mean, these are God's words inspired through people to write these. And like you'll say, well, you know, it says in the Bible, and you'll like say something. And it's true. Let's say you got it right. Let's say you're not one of those people who just messed it up. You got it right. I just happen to believe that sometimes saying, let me read you what the word says that almost like hearing your father's voice that you didn't even know was your father when you hear scripture sometimes, it will touch your heart. Like, I've had people who don't believe in God or fighting me tooth and nail on points when I've, had, when I've been brave enough to do this, and most of the time I'm not brave enough to do this, go, can I read you the verse, though? There's just something that happens to their facial expression even when you read the words. So that's why I encourage Christians more time to stop paraphrasing and actually learn enough scripture to be able to cite or read it because I think the words have power. And definitely when we're in the spiritual context of fighting you know, a spiritual battle like this, it seems that Jesus is telling us, follow my example. This is the way you do it. You quote it. All right, I think you get the point. Three things, okay? We have a shield, a helmet, and a sword. And in this particular context, the most important one that I want to communicate tonight is that sword. Because this one's directly in our power. This one's, we can do this. We don't, you know, to know where the verses are that matter. And to be able to go directly to a verse and say, let me read you this. Now, I hope that you're never in a situation where you're doing battle with Satan, hand-to-hand combat, and you're having to recite verses. Because that's, Not common, first of all. But in your mind, sure, it's more common than you think. Because I already showed you the way he's going to be throwing those arrows at you and all the other things he's going to be doing. And some of those ring true with us because you know they're going on. And sometimes it's as simple as saying to God, I know you won the victory. I know no matter what happens to me in this life, I'm going to be with you in heaven. I don't care. And it's claiming those kinds of things in a situation, that's your shield. You know you have salvation and you become more and more like Christ every day. That's your goal. There's your protection for your mind. If you're trying to become more and more like Christ, then your mind is not polluted with things that the enemy can use to take you down or to neutralize you or to keep you away. 
If you're becoming more and more like Christ, you're not mired in guilt over like sexual sin or whatever the sin is that's bringing you down because you're becoming more and more like Christ. And those things don't appeal to you, at least every day they should appeal to you less. And if you're reciting the word to yourself, to others, and of course when you feel that attack, that's where Satan flees. Okay? What I'm going to do the following Sunday as we transition to the new room is we're going to just come back and just talk about a couple of the themes we talked about in spiritual warfare to wrap it up. But I want to summarize some of it after it gels because a lot of us are still rejecting it. I, I know. I've been praying about it. That we're rejecting the idea of spiritual warfare because we're like, this has been an interesting topic. I learned something. This is kind of like the, uh, the enlisting class for the army. It's like, nice that you're interested. But now we've got to get out there and do something about it. And I want to try to figure out how do we do that. Because you guys have learned some things and I've passed out some brochures and you're interested, but I've got to get you guys enlisted and out there, right? And that's kind of what we're going to be doing. Let's pray and let Ryan lead us as we close tonight. We'll go hang out somewhere in fellowship tonight. If you want to do that fellowship, listen to me, man. I can wear my Evangicube thing. I've identified certain words as definitely Christian, and that one of them is, I'd like to connect with you. Can I get out this week? Maybe we can get together and connect. You know, just a touch base. Yeah, a touch base. I'd like to touch base with you and connect. Maybe just kind of, you know, check in. Oh, I'm putting it on. That's it. It's on. Yeah, you have to put this on. From now on, we're going to pass this out like an award. Like you said, a Christian word. You got to put the belt thing on. I'm going to buy a belt of truth and bring it. Yeah, this is the belt of truth. Clearly, I'm not far on the sanctification road. Let's pray for that too. Let's get out of here with the, with the right attitude. Lord, thank you for the ability to discuss your word in this context. Thank you for the people who dedicate their time each Sunday to learn more about you, especially in the context of format that we do it. When, uh, Lord, there, maybe there's more fun ways to learn or hang out sometimes than to really dive deeply into things that are new or things that require a lot of thought. So I thank you just for the contribution and the investment of that time. Lord, I also thank you for humor and for the ways that we learn together as a group, for the ways that we could critique one another in what we do even, the ways that we can challenge one another in our growth and our belief systems and even in what your word speaks to us so that we can get a round view one, Lord, that really encompasses as much of who you are as we as humans can possibly fit into our minds. And then all the preconceived notions that don't come from you, Lord, I hope are shattered here before you and that only your truth stands. Thank you, Lord, for this, for this group. Thank you for each person who's participated. Thank you for the journey that you've taken us on and all the topics that we've done and the ways that we've grown and deepened in our relationship with you. And specifically on spiritual warfare, Lord, I pray that in the coming weeks we would remain open, we would come back to this topic in a couple of weeks and see that we've grown as a group, not just in knowledge, but in our willingness to participate in the battle, that we not be among those who are counted as apathetic or lazy or even just ignorant of the battle, that, Lord, we're not only aware of it, but that we're ready to put on our armor and pick up our weapons and rush in to save those, Lord, who you love so much. Lord, we often comment on the fact that you chose to leave the message to us. And Lord, I would have counseled you against that, that you would leave us imperfect, selfish, lazy humans with the task of taking your words to the end of the earth. I, I don't know why you did that, but you did. And Lord, I pray that we be faithful because there are people that you love 
whose lives are on the balance every day. And I pray that we might get to them before the enemy does. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.